Hi everyone, this is Steve Hargadon and welcome to the Future of Education and Conversations.net. It's Monday, February 1st, 2010, and our special guest tonight is Daniel Coyle, author of The Talent Code. Welcome, Daniel. Thanks for having me, Steve. It's nice to be here. Oh, really delighted that you're here. And you have obviously an excited audience. People are interested in hearing what you have to say. So futureofeducation.com and conversations.net are sponsored by Illuminate and Illuminate Social Network for Educators called Learn Central. This is my day job. Sure hope that I can help you with something there. There's a free network for educators that has Illuminate within. Coming up on the interview series tomorrow, Tara Hunt on the Wolfie Factor. This is a book I didn't know anything about and devoured it on the plane on a plane ride this weekend and loved it. Aside from the somewhat fluffy title, this is really a an interesting book. It's mostly about education. I'm sorry, it's mostly about business, so it's not directly about education, but an understanding of what's taking place with Web 2.0 in terms of social capital and authenticity and trust is well worth the read. Uh, Wednesday, James Paul G on learning games. Uh, video games for learning. It should be fascinating. Shell Israel on Thursday on his book Twitterville, and of course we'll talk about uh, naked blogging, naked conversations, and his work in blogging. Lisa Gillis next week. Larry Johnson, Clay Shirky coming up. I think that's the Thursday, a week from this Thursday. David Sutton Garland, Dan Pink on the 17th, Kevin Johnson and Susan Manning on online education for dummies. Then March 2nd, Scott uh, Rosenberg on Say Everything, Sharon Peters on Teachers Without Borders, uh, Trilling and um, Fidel, or Fadel, I guess it's Fidel, 21st Century Skills. That should be really fun on March 17th, Tony Wagner. And then, yes, Sir Ken Robinson, misspelled there, but Sir Ken Robinson did reconfirm. So on March 30th, he is coming up, and lots more, as you can see. This is your first time in Illuminate. want to make sure that you have some understanding of how to use this interactive environment. Uh, this is a uh, a participatory event tonight, so you have some opportunities to participate. Um, you can, if you would like toward the end, actually ask for the microphone and take the microphone to ask a question. But in the meantime, you have some other ways to uh, let us know how you're feeling. There are these little emoticons at the bottom of the participant window, smiley face, clapping hand, um, confused look or thumbs down. You're welcome to use those. The bigger hand icon with the green up arrow is to raise your hand and that would let us know that you would like to take the microphone. You can send messages into the chat, um, both uh, to everybody in the room and also to someone individually. But do know that Daniel and I, as moderators, see those messages even though they appear to be private. And then if you do take the microphone, in order to turn your mic on, you click on this Talk button, which is down at the bottom. Over here on the whiteboard are some icons for participating. And what we're going to do is now give everybody access to the whiteboard. And tell us where you're listening from. So look for the wand with the red star at the end. Click on that, and then click on the map and let us know where you're located. It can also be fun to shout out in the chat your location, maybe the time and the weather. Daniel, you've got a North American crowd. Yeah. <laughs> Good. And my Spanish is not too, uh, not too polished <laughs> up, so that's perfect. Yeah, a lot of fun. Someone listening in from Alaska. That's you. Isn't it? Aren't you in Alaska? You know, I normally do live in Alaska, but I'm in Ohio right now, so that is someone else. Well, that's fun. So that's Deb Burdick, I guess. Must be. There she is. Yeah, perfect. Hello, Deb. 
Okay, so uh, let's just get going. Uh, I don't think I've read a book, Daniel, uh, in a long time that so profoundly changed how I saw, how I see uh, most of my interactions with uh, my children and and other people that I feel like I'm in some role of helping to to coach at some level. Do other people tell you that this book has profoundly impacted them? You know, I, I, I do hear that a bit. It's um, quite a bit, actually. And I guess I, I relate to it because it profoundly the way profoundly changed the way I look at in my life, too. You know, I, I started out on this, uh, on this journey mostly as a journalist visiting these talent hotbeds to see, try to figure out what made them tick and to look at the underlying neurology. And that journey, um, you know, has a lot of different dimensions to it. But the main one is to say, you know, the way we've been thinking about talent, the way we try to build skill and maximize potential is 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 really is really changing in a way. We're at a very exciting moment where we're getting new understanding of the way talent actually grows as opposed to the way we sort of thought it did. So I, I've thought of this question and I wanted to be careful about how I asked it, but I think we get a lot of pseudoscience and I don't know mm -hmm. if you experience this as well, but um, you know, a lot of times there's a, there are a lot of messages about how things work in our physical bodies, and you know, a lot of them relate to certain kinds of regimens for health or homeopathic medicine or something else. And I think we're a little bit inherently, or at least I know, I'm a little inherently suspicious of models that draw directly from science that don't come necessarily from a scientist. So. Could you tell kind of the story of how you got here and, and give us some sense of the credibility of the science? You bet. You bet. Let's start. Uh, I'll tell you a little bit about, about myself. I've been, been a journalist writing about a variety of stuff, mostly sports, politics, all kinds of things. And in, well, I guess it was the fall of 2006, I came across a little clip that talked about a tennis club in Moscow that had produced more top 20 women players than the entire United States. This place had one court. And that idea, that image of this tiny place that had produced an incredible amount of talent, so many of the children from the same class were meeting in the final of, of, uh, finals of major championships, sort of got me going. And I started looking at similar places like this, places in education, places, hot, hotbeds in arts, hotbeds in music. And I decided to go out and, and look at them. And at the time I was looking for these things, I, I started doing a lot of research in, into the neurology. And as a former pre-med student, that, uh, that research came, uh, I became sort of obsessed with it. And like you, I am sort of suspicious of the science. I want to I burrow down and get beneath kind of the stuff you might, might read in USA Today to what actually is going on in the frontiers. And, I remember calling up a, a neurologist who worked for the National Institute of Health, and he started, um, he didn't sound like any neurologist I had ever, I had ever spoken with. Uh, we started talking about talent. We started talking about the brain. We started talking about a particular substance, actually, that, that grows when you practice something. And he, I said, what, you know, he said this, he used the word, this, he said, this is an epiphany. This, this moment that we're having with understanding how myelin works, this is an epiphany. And talking to more and more and more neurologists, I got the sense, uh, the clear sense, and reading more and more of the research, all of which is compiled in the notes of the book, um, that we really are at a moment. Talent is the last magical thing. We, the way we think about it has not really changed since the 1400s, essentially. 
Um, but to understand that actually what's happening up there, if you take the neurolog neurologist's point of view, certain kinds of practice build neural broadband. They build very fast, very fluent neural circuits. We are brains are learning machines, and they learn according to certain principles. And those principles are what the book ended up being all about. Okay, so um, we we obviously must have been or are thinking um, erroneously in certain ways about talent. So, what are the traps? What are the ways of thinking that we have that we have had in the past that this helps to address? Well, the first trap is that it's a that a prodigy is indicative, and and that the talent is essentially a possession that you're given at birth in the form of genes. That there's a divine spark that we think of that we you think of as a gene essentially. We, that if you have the gene to be a great musician, you'll be a great musician. If you have the gene to be a great athlete, you'll be a great athlete. But genes matter. Genes clearly matter, but they don't matter in the way that I think we think that they do. Um, the most important finding, which I think some of your listeners are probably already clued into, is a simple, simple number. It's 10,000 hours. That's the number of hours it takes of intensive practice to become world class in anything. Now, this finding, which cuts across music, math, sports, art, medicine, everything, this number exists because this practice is changing our brains. This kinds of, this certain kinds of practice and certain kinds of persistence um, when you love something enough to practice it for 10,000 hours, you actually are building these high-speed neural networks that are skill. When Jimi Hendrix plays a guitar solo, that is a high-speed neural network. When uh, somebody scores 800 on their math SATs, that is a high-speed neural network. We're not, we're not born with those. Those aren't genes. Those are a result of something we construct. And the act of construction is the thing that I think gets undervalued. When you think of talent as as a possession, as a gene, that is the first and kind of the, the biggest monster trap that I think most of us fall into automatically. Okay, so you mentioned in the book about watching a baby learn to walk. And I immediately thought of uh, learning to drive and how it seems so scary and hard when you're 15. But then when you're 16 and three months, it seems like second nature. Are those operating on the same principle? They are. They are. We are built to learn along certain paths. When you when you struggle, essentially when you operate in sort of a sweet spot of struggling, you can you are constructing a neural network. The notion that failure. We normally think of failure according to the old view of talent, and the failure is kind of a verdict. But when you visit these talent hotbeds, you start to see very quickly that what certain kinds of failure are extraordinarily productive. When you're operating right at the edge of your ability right at the edge when you're reaching for something that you can't quite touch and failing and reaching again. Um, that is where you are, in fact, constructing what Robert Bjork at UCLA calls a neural scaffold. You are making connections, and that act of making connections is the root of all skill, whether you're driving or walking or anything. Um, and you see these, it's funny, it, it comes across in sort of a particular face. When I visited the talent hotbeds, and I went to nine of them from Brazil to Texas to New York to the Caribbean, um, I, I saw a particular expression, and it was the expression of Clint Eastwood, uh, a very intent, almost frustrated, sort of a flinty, grasping look, um, because there's a certain sensation that goes with that very deep, deliberate practice. 
and that is the sensation of almost a frustrating, difficult work. It's almost like, you know, with muscles we talk about feeling the burn. Well, with all mental skills, there's kind of that burn present. And then once you build it, the way our brains are built, once we automate something, it is effortless, like walking or driving, um, with certain kinds of motor skills, the examples you mentioned before. Daniel, did you click a button there because of the uh, telephone bridge no, came I, up and I'm not quite sure why no, that. Oh no, I didn't. I actually did. It looks like I may need to start that again. Give me one second. No, it just it's going. Okay, well I was at a conference this weekend, a really wonderful conference in Philadelphia called Educon, and um, Gary Steger, you're not going to know him, but some in the audience will, was talking about um, Seymour Papert. And um, uh, the story he told was that Seymour Papert said, we do a great disservice to students in regard to math. And he said, we, we say if they don't do very well in math that they, in fact, uh, don't have a, a head for math. And then he said, but if they don't do very well in French, we don't say they don't have a, a head for French because we can assume that if they had been born in France, they would have learned to speak French. And so he, he coins this phrase, math land. If you've been born in math land, then you would learn to do math. So are there ways in which culturally we've reflected misunderstandings here? I mean, this idea that some people are good at math and others aren't, is your contention that the core issue here is just time and practice? My core issue, the, the core issues are time and practice, but, but really on a deeper sense, the core issue is love. You know, the core issue is what makes someone feel like they belong to math land? What makes someone feel like they belong to France? What makes someone feel like they were born to be a, to be a writer? Or, or to be a, a software engineer. That feeling, those kinds of environmental signals that set that up are actually a really fascinating area because it's not just the 10,000 hours, it's the love that is driving that 10,000 hours. What kind of things cause that? And the, and the talent hotbeds that I visited were kind of interesting. They were each a little Petri dish where you could see those signals in play, you know. And the first, you know, there's several signals that you'd see over and over again. Um, and it came down to, in a rough sense, of what was in the person's windshield, what people were out there in front of them that they saw often, every day, that, that they might want to become. Having a model there was, was a huge, huge unconscious trigger of, of motivation. Um, there was an interesting uh, visit that I took to Kip, uh, Kip Hartwood, a school in San Jose, which some of you might have heard of, a very successful charter school that in four years in an inner city neighborhood rose to become, I think they're about the 96th percentile uh, scoring on the math exams in California State. And extraordinarily successful school in a very difficult environment. And they did a great thing. They took the fourth and fifth graders to visit colleges. They never, they didn't say much when they visited the colleges. They would just take them there and walk around the campus and say, look, there's a kid who used to live in this neighborhood who now is here at Berkeley or Stanford or UCLA. And then they'd go back. And the teachers there told me the kids would be completely uh, transformed by these kinds of experiences where they're simply allowed to connect the dot between there's someone like them in a place where they might want to be. And I think we typically underrate those sorts of experiences um, when in fact they can be quite powerful. So I immediately thought uh, of, of a way in which this really changed my perception of my own family's life. Um, because we'll see families where all of the kids are very um, talented musically. And uh, you know we've sort of said, well, that's you know that's just not a, a part of our family or our, our genes. 
but I'm, I'm getting the feeling now that what was really happened is that we didn't necessarily have the skills ourselves or the understanding of how to create the right environment for learning a music. And, and that, um, that more than anything, it just probably reflects a family pattern of kind of understanding how to learn music. And then I think what you're saying is that sort of the modeling and the love that, that are surrounding in that endeavor for a family. I think it's exactly right. And, and to see someone you love doing something, um, you know, many of the best musicians I met, well, their parents happened to be musicians. And they had sat from the time they were babies watching the person they loved most in the world love an instrument. And, and that is, that's the kind of environment. And the interesting thing is when you try to transfer that to an academic setting, when you do what KIPP has, I think, done successfully, which is create sort of a KIPP land, if you will, um, in the very language that they use, everything is about team. When they raise their hand, they address their teacher and their fellow teammates. Um, they become a kipster. They get a certain kind of a shirt that they turn. It's very elaborate. To, to sum it up, it's an incredibly elaborate, detailed culture that they are simply not, it's not about where they are. They're not in school. It's about who they are and, and who they're linked to. Um, in their future, what lines can they draw on their map that, of their life that they can say, okay, I, I can be pointed in this direction. Um, it sounds sort of soft, but done with a very cohesive way where everything in the school matters, where every element is there for a reason. Even the garbage on the floor, the teachers would occasionally throw garbage onto the floor to give students an opportunity to pick it up and do a good deed. And when they did a good deed, they would be celebrated like they were heroes. Um, which, in a sense, they really were in that culture. So it was, um, it was a nice example of a, of a kind of a cohesive place where all of these signals work together as a kind of giant radio station that's constantly sending the message, you can do it, you can do it, you can do it, because look at all these other people around you that are doing it. Okay, so if I'm understanding you correctly, then you have this confidence or more sense that you can do it. You work a little harder, and as you work a little harder and continue to practice, you actually build up the neural pathways and you begin to get better, and you have the feeling of reinforcement as you get better. So you're sort of moved in a direction where improvement is kind of a natural part of the process? That's right. That's right, an extension of who you are. I mean, the love has to come first. The love has to come before the hard work. The love fuels the hard work. You know, you essentially, as a teacher, have got a human being is like a, like a, a battery. You know, you can, you can either... Uh, give it more charge, right, or you can direct where it fires. And in order to really build the kind of, to make that into a fast, fluent neural circuit to do algebra, to, to write beautiful term papers, um, you need to first have that charge going. You need to create the fuel. I mean, I, I was in one of the more fun moments was being in a math class that was a KIPP, and I, I was able to sort of witness the work of a real outstanding teacher named Juanita Jackson. And um, she began her class each year by turning off the lights. First day of class. This first day of class was so important. Um, she turned off the lights, and she started it. She turned on a, a boombox and played the Star Wars theme really, really loud, and started to walk around the room and sort of in an incantatory way say, we're going somewhere. You know where we're going? We're going to college. You guys in this room, in this fourth grade math class, you are all going to college because what we are going to do here today and tomorrow and the next day, and we're going to work hard, and it's going to be tough. And she, she it was this incredible speech that talked all about how hard it was going to be and how thrilling it became, you know, as they strapped themselves in for this rocket ship ride. Um, it was, it was, it was impressive. And it does sound, you know, and I can see 
kind of, you know, I see a comment here saying who has talent for, who has passion for writing a term paper, get real. Um, you should go to one of those schools because actually they're filled with kids who have a lot of passion for writing term papers. They really see it because they see this as their way out. They see this, I'm going to go to college and this term paper that I'm writing now is going to help me get there. They've connected this boring act, and it is boring to write a term paper, to something that's sort of magical. And, and that's their identity and their future. So I'm sure we're going to really drill down on the education piece here, but I find it fascinating that we would even describe a term paper as boring, because what that indicates about how we feel about education is fascinating. Um, you know, the, the idea that, that deeply learning about a subject and then learning to communicate it is considered a boring act, we're, we're, there's something wrong. So um, there, a comment was made by, um, uh, looks like Deb, well, whom I'm thinking knows you here, Deb Burdick, and she talks about her brother, uh, and it's, it's uh, higher up here, but um, it relates to being born in difficult circumstances or with disabilities. And I remember reading some years ago that some high percentage of small, successful small business owners were dyslexic, and, and wondering what the, you know, what the connection there was. Do you want to talk a little bit about the role of difficulties and struggle as it relates to talent? Yeah, you bet, you bet. And it's, um, it's really interesting when you start looking at these patterns of, of difficulty and, and success because it's remarkable. Um, when you look at dyslexic entrepreneurs, which you mentioned, I mean, uh, Richard Branson, uh, Chambers, who runs AT&T, um, there's about five more that, I'm, that I can't bring to my tongue right now. And they all describe essentially the same thing, which is a real frustration that they couldn't succeed in a normal way. And all that energy and frustration being poured into the process of slowly learning how to do it a different way, of, of uh, learning how to read emotional cues, about learning how to get through without having to read the term paper by using uh, oral communication and talking to your friends. They're all brilliantly sensitive. They're all emotional athletes, and they became sort of emotional, intuitive athletes because they had to, because they had to practice that over and over again to build this remarkable circuitry. They didn't start out that way. Um, but it's a nice example of how a difficulty can both ignite a passion, there's your fuel element, and also provide an opportunity to deeply, deeply practice something over and over and over again until you become quite skilled at something that it turns out to be is a good deal more valuable than spelling correctly or getting your long division correct. So we talked at the beginning when we were having to do a little technical work about paying no attention to the man behind the curtain. But that phrase has kind of stuck with me since I've said it. And I'm wondering about the effect of the internet and the ability to, the difference between seeing somebody, say, on television performing a song and thinking, oh, that's just somebody with great talent who's risen to the top, and being able to watch on the internet all of the different people, say, on YouTube, all of the different people trying different things and playing around. Do you think that there is inherent in that visibility about the, the ability to see behind the curtain that the internet brings to us that helps us to understand talent better? It's fantastic. Actually, there's a, there's a group, uh, it's most clearly seen in classical music, strangely, but I, th I think, yes, to answer your story, shortly, I think it's, it's massively important um, to sort of take skilled performance off of the, the sort of remote stage and bring it into an intimate level. Uh, soccer coaches and, and 
classical music teacher is seeing this explosion of kids who are essentially training themselves by using YouTube, who are looking at great performances. And say in, in soccer, they copy tricks. They look at a great Brazilian kid doing something amazing with the ball, and then they go out and they tr they slow it down. They watch it a million times, and then they go do it a million times. And you see these skills progressing be far beyond what they used to see uh, sort of in the pre-internet age. And the same essential thing is happening to classical music. How do you translate that to an academic setting, I wonder? I mean, is there is there a way to do that? Um, certainly with certain physical things, you can see how that would be possible. Maybe with certain kinds of talking and acting. Um, how do you make algebra sort of YouTubeable? Um, I wonder. But absolutely, the potential, which you're seeing there, is kind of, I would say, mostly um, an ignition, a, a motivational uh, force at work there. Plus, you get, we're all born mimics. I mean, mimicry is sort of the, the best, uh, most efficient sort of royal road to learning in a lot of, in a lot of ways. So it's a combination of great mimic opportunity and a, a tremendous ignition to look at somebody out there in kind of humble settings who's doing it too. Well, we're getting a lot of neat comments here, and I'm, we'll probably turn quickly over to you know, a line for Q&A. Um, uh, certainly questions about um, um, you know, the 10,000 hours and motivation and interest. Um, do you want to talk, uh, uh, the, we jumped right in without actually sort of giving the overview structure of the book, which for me, and I think um, you're pretty clear about, is sort of deep practice, ignition, and master coaching. Do, do you want to um, kind of give a, um, any more detail on the ignition or the master coaching? Or I guess we didn't even really talk too much about the, the deep practice, but is there something we didn't talk about that you feel sort of fills out the story? Yeah, I mean, essentially, it's a you know, it's it's a it's story of a process. It's a story of falling in love because of certain environmental signals. A certain pattern causes us to fall in love. It's a certain pattern of practice, a certain kind of practice. We think of practice as being just sort of this vague effort. And in fact, it's a very, to build a neurofast fluent neural network, it's a very distinct sensation. It's a reaching. It's, it's a very narrow type of practice that builds skill rapidly, sort of high velocity practice, you might say. And the person, I think maybe this is what you know, our audience tonight will relate to, is there really is a kind of person who, who is a, who I call a master coach. When I visited these talent hotbeds, I felt like I kept meeting the same person. They would. They weren't very showy. They weren't super charismatic. Um, they tended to be older, and they would sort of have this uncanny knack of giving exactly the right little signal at exactly the right time. And they were almost the personification of this process. They could ignite people, and they could get them in that zone of deep practice. They could ignite, and they could get them in that sweet spot in that zone. And so that is is what I call in the book Master Coaching, and that's the sort of personality that, that is is the embodiment of this of this process of, of human learning. So you mentioned Carol Dweck in the book, and um, I'm trying to remember the name of her book, um, Mindsets, right? And yep. the whole idea, and, and I, the first thing that occurs to me is the experience I have every fall on every Saturday watching parents screaming at their children from the sidelines at soccer games. So tell us what's wrong with that. <laughs> oh, there's so many. Um, no, it's... Uh, the difference, I think what she's extremely good at pointing out is that little cues matter a lot and that language matters. When we praise a child for his ability, 
we're actually sending a message for them not to take any more risk, to protect that status. If you tell a kid, you are brilliant at math, Bobby, you are just great, they will act in such a way, and there's a, a beautiful classic string of experiments that, that demonstrates this, um, where with five words of praise, she gets one group to, to not take any more risks, and with uh, five different words, she gets another group to actually perform better. When you praise a child for his effort, you're telling him the truth, which is that effort matters, persistence matters, repetition matters, going and taking a little bit of risk and getting out of your comfort zone is okay. And that's a perfect message to send a kid to if you want to get him in that sweet spot of learning um, on the edge of his or her ability. But when you praise a child for their effort and you tell them you're a genius, you actually are telling them not to risk anymore, to protect that status. And kids will act in accordance with that. And she she brilliantly illuminates that. These little words that we that we use uh, matter a great deal. So you have four children of your own, I think. Um, how much has how much have you changed your own practices based on this? Quite a bit. Um, you know, my wife and I it's kind of worked our way into our in, into our lives and. It, kind of a pleasant way. It's made things a little bit more mellow when you realize that, you know, I can't force them to fall in love. When they do fall in love with what they do fall in love with, then they can they can go bananas. But it's not like I'm looking, you know, there's a certain franticness associated with modern parenting where you're trying to frantically look for the thing that your child is divinely talented at. And when you start seeing talent as this combination of love and certain kinds of practice that you can, in our little in our little house, celebrate that um, when they're really struggling with a passage on the violin or or with a bit of math homework to really celebrate to say yes it's supposed to feel this way it's supposed to be a struggle that's a good sign um, it's it's a, it's a good message it makes it makes parenting easier and I, th I think it makes being a kid easier um, rather than being told well there's some genius out there that you haven't discovered yet and if you can't do it then it's a verdict it's nice how it makes failure into um, not a verdict but an inevitable part of the process of getting better so there's, I only had one complaint about the book, which was you tease us about shorter, Clar Clar shorter Clarissa three dot mov, and I can't find it anywhere. <laughs> you know, I even called her up. She's all grown up, and uh, this is this is a little movie um, that a music psychologist named Gary McPherson made of of someone suddenly accelerating their practice time. Uh, ten times, uh, this this little girl does a a month's worth of practice in five minutes, and it is a remarkable tape. I hate to tease you with it again, Steve, but uh, it is an amazing amazing thing because you see her. Um, well, first she plays a piece that she's she plays it very smoothly, and she essentially doesn't progress at all. She's not out of her comfort zone, um, and then she plays a second part, and she's she plays a couple notes and stops and realizes she made a mistake and fingers the note and then goes back and plays a couple more and stops and that is the beautiful moment that is where she's sort of squinting and and and, and leaning forward and desperately trying to do this and failing and doing it again and that's that's what high velocity practice looks like that's what it feels like um, and unfortunately because of the terms of the original experiment even though everyone says I can use this and should send it out to the world um, we're not allowed to sort of send it out publicly but we've all we've all experienced it ourselves, I think, and you can see it in a classroom, and you can see it in a music lesson, and you can see it in a sports lesson to to uh, have sort of these empty calorie moments where no progress is happening, and then to have these moments where tons of progress is happening. It gives you something to hang on to as a as a teacher, some some sort of state that you're aiming for, just like a a gym teacher might be aiming for. Let's let's feel the burn here.
So maybe a little bit of uh, the, maybe the elephant in the room for me here and the, and the topic I want to kind of finish up our portion with before we go to Q&A is this issue of failure. Um, and I'm thinking of modeling and apprenticeship situations where there's a, there's a sort of a natural watching of failure and then accomplishment and achievement. But it feels as though in our current school environments, there's really no opportunity to understand um, failure. Did, do you, have you thought about that at all? You know, probably not nearly as much as you have, frankly. No, no. Tell me more. Well, so I'm I'm intrigued by um, just this sense that, uh, like, I'm watching my own daughter practice piano. She's 11, and um, just the degree to which failure is uh, would appear to her to be such a negative, and that and that we're, um, you know, at least in in the school experiences that we've had with our kids. That uh, you know you're you're not you're you're to be accomplishing and achieving a certain level. So I think maybe much in the vein of Carol Dweck, um, you know I, would, I really want to do well on the test. I don't want to show my weakness at all. Whereas in a much more natural setting like a family or or to you know sustain tennis um, camp or um, you know in a um, in some kind of an environment an apprenticeship environment, there would be a much more natural sense of failure as a part of the progression. Exactly. And, and yeah. I, I'm curious as to mm -hmm. for those of you who are actually actively teaching, is is that just really hard to bring into the school environment, the the ability to make mistakes? Does that is that just difficult in the way we think about schooling? And do we do we stigmatize failure? I mean, we certainly see that in the business community as well. And I think I think we do. And I think good teachers find a way to make that failure happen in an emotionally safe place. You know, um, uh, at Kip, uh, they're quite good at that with their the way that they handle their math. Um, you know, they'd sort of wait until everybody was. Uh, they didn't take tests very much. It makes you look at testing a little bit differently. It makes you look at. Uh, the prep work, you know, maybe it should resemble more of an athletic workout. But finding a way to make that failure in a in kind of a safe environment where it doesn't become a verdict is that's that's part a real art, I would say. Well, so you described John Wooden's style, and and I'd love you to talk about that a little. But I I certainly don't get the feeling for him as a coach that uh, he is not expecting failure because he he models, you know, he shows the positive. Then he shows how, what the failure would be, and then he shows the positive again, with an understanding that you're going to have to figure this out and learn it, right? And so, is that inherent in that good kind of coaching in a way that we just have a hard time sort of seeing in, a, in an academic environment? I think so. I mean, the, the, the you know, as Wooden would say, the team that makes the most mistakes wins, actually, because they have the most opportunity for learning. Um, you know, to to have almost to import some of the philosophy and some of the lingo and some of the attitude from sports into education would be perfectly appropriate because when it comes down to it, um, you know, these things are all different forms of building neural networks. They're all different forms of learning. And it can be helpful if you loosen it up a little bit and, and realize, you know what, everybody's going to screw up here for a while because we're getting better. Um, you know, a friend's teacher just unnerved some parents by saying, uh, that the word for the year was going to be struggle, and a lot of parents didn't want to hear that. But as the year went on, and we're now halfway through it, the teachers and the parents have really come around to this teacher's point of view. You know what? This this feeling of struggle is really a worthwhile feeling of going for. There's, there's a great study that I, I, I mentioned in the book of 
different classrooms. One classroom, uh, it was a study Jim Stigler at UCLA did, and he looked at um, classroom time studying math and science classes in America and in Japan. And then he looked at how they spent their time. In the Japanese classroom, 44% uh, of the time was spent actively struggling actively struggling. The teacher would occasionally, the Japanese teacher would give them false answers in order to induce struggling in, in his students. Um, in the American class, so that's 44% of the time they were actively struggling. In the American classroom, it was 2% of the time they were actively struggling. The teacher there was like a butler. The teacher there, there was no failure. There was no anything because everything was just kind of being smoothed over as it came out. Um, you know, the word education it contains the root educe, which means uh, to draw out. And that act of drawing out and making someone struggle is not, it's at the core of what good teaching is. So I was intrigued um, also that uh, it seems like uh, you mentioned Toyota a couple of times in the book. And I, and I thought of Kaizen and the sort of continuous improvement process and the ability to stop the line. And I wondered about environments that sort of institutionalize the process of learning. Is, is Toyota one that you feel has done that? Well, uh, we'll, we'll be, yes, they are actually. The Kaizen that they practice is brilliant, though with their latest uh, escapade with the accelerator. We'll see how quickly they can fix that major problem. Um, but yes, absolutely. They've institutionalized it. The Finnish school system has institutionalized it to a certain extent, um, to pick an educational example. But to have a culture that leans toward these moments of struggle, toward identifying them, toward fixing them, um, is, is it's a cultural question more than it is a teacher question, I think. Okay, so Carolyn, aka Fish Math, brings us to our kind of the final moment. She says, this is a nice sentiment and all, but if you were performing surgery on me, you'd better get it right the first time. Is this a pushback that you sometimes get and or what kinds of pushback do you get on the thesis of the talent code? Yeah, the main pushback is, um, is that that's not the way talent feels um, in some ways. Some people feel like, you know, they look at their neighbor who's a really good rock guitarist and they say, you know, I, I just couldn't do that, you know. And I, there's a certain amount of truth to that. You know, we're all, we, we are all different. Uh, the thesis of this book is not that we all can become Michelangelo, but that we all share the same path forward. Um, and fortunately, I mean, you're right, and uh, fish math is right. I mean, you know, you better absolutely get it right if you're a brain surgeon. Fortunately, most of us um, in this room are in lines of work where we, 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 don't, we don't have to bat a thousand every single time, and there is room for struggle, and there is room for error. Um, and actually, if you talk to brain surgeons, uh, they'll, they'll tell you that the process of, of learning that um, is fraught with struggle and error um, because it is a human being learning to do something really well, and that is um, that's the same no matter who you are. No, no one, no one's, no one's born born talented. Okay, well let's open it up for a little Q and A. This is an active crowd. I think you'll get some good questions here. Um, the, one of the responses to Fish Math's statement was, uh, and I think as you as you kind of indicated, that there's there's a lot of practice behind the scenes and before the actual surgery takes place. Um, did anybody want to follow up on that at all? Was that resolved or did you want to ask um, Daniel any questions about that particular topic? 
Okay, so Anna's saying, can you speak to age and the development of neural pathways? This seems to fly in the face of brain research that says after about the age of 13 or 14, you've acquired the seven or so ways you learn acquire information. Or are we talking about two different things? I'm specifically wondering about how the shutting down of neural pathways could limit top performance ability in adults. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, we, our brain goes through these developmental waves. And when it comes to building top performance, when it comes to building high-speed neural networks, we rely on this substance called myelin, which was what made the neurologist so excited at the beginning of my project. It's basically electrical tape for your brain. And the big discovery about myelin is that when you, when you practice something, when you fire a circuit, it actually wraps. It actually wraps, this myelin wraps around just like electrical tape, and that speeds up the impulses. It basically makes you smart. It, uh, and myelin arrives in a wave uh, as we get older. So yes, this is why we are very, very fast learners about certain things. It arrives, the wave goes from the back of your brain to the front. And so when it comes to motor skills, movement, basic things, that comes younger when it comes to abstract thoughts, um, when it comes to algebra, when it comes to biology too, that is, that's in the front of your brain, that's in the cortex. So this wave determines how quickly we get sort of fast and wise and fluent. Um, and there's obviously a lot of other neurology happening at the same time, but uh, it was interesting, one of the neurologists that I spoke to said, you know, we should really give uh, women, girls, driver's license before boys because their myelin arrives uh, that much sooner, and that accounts for some of their increased maturity at the same age. Good, and I put a link to your site in the chat, because uh, I enjoyed watching them. There was a one video clip I watched, the ABC Nightline clip that I thought did a really good job of kind of talking about the science of that. And you, I think, mentioned a, a, a clip with um, Tiger Woods, but I don't know that I actually saw that. Oh, it was a, uh, it was a, and I decided early on this that I should put my money where my research was and try to learn something very difficult. Uh, and the thing that came to mind was, I don't remember a commercial that he did many, a few years ago, where he bounced a ball on a sand wedge, and he went behind his back and caught it in the midair, and then, then finally ended up sort of juggling it like a virtuoso, and then whacking it out of thin air. Uh, the ball never touched the ground. And so I don't play uh, golf necessarily, but I had, uh, I, I did sort of learn that trick in order to see if I could uh, if I could learn something like that, and then I, and I did, and the, the video evidence is there on the site. Oh, so it's a video of you doing that trick. That's right. That's right. It's a video of me doing it, and then another video of me learning it. Actually, I videotaped myself learning that trick and how that's what deep practice and struggle looked like. It was quite uh, it was quite funny. My my son, my 14 year old, edited it in kind of a humorous form, but. Uh, I believe the title was Daddy Messing Up. Okay, so special bonus points to anybody who can find um, that uh, one of those videos on the Talent Code website and put the link in the chat for us. Okay, so if anybody would like to actually take the microphone, you can. Use the hand icon with the green up arrow. Uh, you're also welcome to put um, a question in the chat. It was hard for me. I'm not sure I caught everything that went by. So if you asked a question that didn't get answered, please post it again, and and we'll um, we'll raise it with Daniel. Um, Deb says, Have you found any talent blockers, actions, activities, or anything that has been done that seems to impede talent development beyond the obvious? I know you were looking for exemplary examples, but maybe you might have made note of some of these things. 
Yeah, one was interesting. Um, you know, a bunch of stuff, because essentially this is an act of construction. Many things, as I think uh, Sam Rayburn once said, he said, it takes a carpenter to build uh, a house, but any jackass can knock one down. So there's a lot of stuff that can get in the way of these active constructions, cynicism, uh, uh, rough emotional environments at home, any kind of things that can make someone sort of not want to practice deeply. Um, but one of the curious ones that I found was, was luxury. Uh, when you put someone in an environment where everything is lovely and manicured and hotel-like, they naturally shut down effort. Every talent hub that I visited, and I didn't, even the ones that were, um, that were in presumably nice places, a classical music camp in upstate New, New York, every one that I visited was kind of a dump. Um, and I think that has partly to do with the, the, the people who run these places uh, kind of desire to put their resources not toward facility but toward the human element, toward the human element of their landscape. They're not going to have money to buy a new facility necessarily, and if they do have money, they won't use it um, to, to buy uh, poinsettias. They'll use it on, on coaches. They'll use it on, on balls. They'll use it on books. They'll use it on blackboards. Um, so you see this, you know, this answer that if we build a beautiful new facility, it'll change everything. I mean, most of the KIPP schools, and certainly Rafe Esquith's experience um, in, the Los, in his Los Angeles classroom, all uh, kind of argue against that in a way. The landscape that matters the most is, is the human landscape. So we're getting a couple of questions about bringing this into schools. And one earlier comment five or ten minutes ago was, um, so do you have to find something that's interesting enough to a student that they'll want to spend 10,000 hours on it? And my first reaction was, um, it, they may not think at the moment they're going to want to spend 10,000 hours, but it's probably self-reinforcing that they begin to have a little bit of success, they enjoy the challenge, they see themselves getting to the next level, so all of a sudden they're sort of drawn into a path that would lead to the 10,000 hours. Would that uh, square with your perceptions? Yeah, absolutely. It's a I think we all look back at our own lives, and it's not as if we, you know, sort of decided at one moment, yes, I'm going to be a journalist, and started clocking in the factory. I mean, these are very, these are, um, you need to sort of picture it in the, as this, as what it is, which is this incredibly uh, sort of branching, big, connected circuit that is your set of skills. And, and what causes you to start out is not necessarily the thing that's going to drive you all through. Um, and what that argues for, I think, is for our schools to be um, sort of like radio stations of motivation, to have lots of signals. That's the thing that I noticed at the town hotbeds. It wasn't just one signal. It wasn't just sort of, oh, a kid from this neighborhood succeeded in math, and so now everybody can. It was this really cohesive culture of signals radiating all the time from all different kinds of people in the community. Um, it made me think of, of Paul Tuff's work um, describing the Harlem Children's Zone. Um, because that's an example. You know, human beings, we, we sort of are constantly reacting to what's around us. And these hotbeds are able to build these really cohesive environments that, that work because it's not just part of the person's life. It's, it's, it is their life. So uh, I'll, I'll keep looking for questions here. But I am interested in having you talk a little bit more about the kinds of characteristics of master coaches. Um, you talk about them being quiet and reserved, uh, just giving sort of pure information. Um, do you, you know, c uh, should this be a forming teaching practice? How, uh, should we be looking for ways to, to uh, kind of talk about this act of coaching? 
I'm fascinated by it. I mean, I don't come from a from a teaching background, but I can say I'm fascinated by it. I, I do, you know, coach baseball, and I've taken some of these characteristics and, frankly, just tried to copy them, and they they work. Um, you know, and one of them to sort of go through a couple is that they do deliver information in these very, very, very short bites. Nothing is longer than three seconds. It's crystal clear. It's very short. And they, it's almost like watching somebody sort of shocking someone, dip, 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 and they're able to instantly react to whatever the student responds with. And that response is never negative. It's always moving forward. It's always positive. If they'll try A, they'll try B, they'll try C, they'll try D. And each time the student reacts, it's like watching a, a sort of a dance back and forth where the student will try something and mess up and mess up, and the, and the teacher will find a way to give them something to point to, and the, te and the student will try again. And this instantaneous access to their expertise um, is was the beautiful part of that, uh, and one of the characteristics that you saw across across the board, no matter what they were teaching, this instant access to kind of their matrix, and the delivery of that matrix in quick, little, tiny bites. And the other characteristic they had that I enjoyed was, was humor. Every single one of the master coaches I met was quite funny. And on one point of, you know, the, the way I think of it, and I, you know, is that, you know, this deliberate practice, hard practice, this deep practice, this zone we're trying to get people to go into on the edge of their ability is not a pleasant place to be. Having humor is kind of the emotional lubrication of making that possible. It's not an accident that they're funny people. It's not an accident that the love we feel for our favorite teachers it's there. It's there because of the size of their personality that was required to get us to do the hard work that we did that made them such a good teacher. Yeah, we also make the point that they're seemingly average teachers often early on in the, in the talented person's life. Do you want to sort of uh, explain that? Yeah, and it, it comes from some studies. Benjamin Bloom did some interesting studies of, of master master musicians and um, found that a lot of them were taught just by neighborhood neighborhood students, neighborhood teachers. I'm sorry. And but when actually when you look closer and you looked at the the comments that these now brilliant piano players made about their original teachers, it becomes apparent that those original teachers were very very good at igniting the love, the love. The feeling. It's very difficult to play piano. You have a lot of fingers and there's a lot of keys. But to have a teacher who's able to inspire a kid to come back again and again and again is an emotional skill. You know, they're an emotional athlete. And the master coaches that I met, oftentimes, they wouldn't seem like they weren't sort of the most well-paid coach in the world. They weren't the most charismatic coach in the world. But they were all emotional athletes able to do the two things that coaches can do. One. Uh, ignite motivation, inspire the love, charge the battery. And number two is hit them with that spark that tells them where to fire their next circuit to give them that short, sharp shock that will uh, that'll get, that'll earn them more skill. So someone's making a connection with the Surf's Up movie. Gosh, I'm going to have to think about that. Is that a movie you're familiar with, Daniel? I'm, I'm afraid it's not. Okay, so let's let's uh, riff on that for for one minute. Uh, are there movies that you have watched where you really felt like they modeled as well? Um, obviously, sports movies come to mind, but are there movies that you really like that you kind of point people to? 
You know, so many movies have got that magical scene where all of a sudden they get it, kind of the Rockies, Troy, it's terrible, and then he goes training and then he gets it. And um, the kind of magic and speed with which he gets it is always sort of over overblown and overrated. Um, no, I can say most movies uh, sort of romanticize that to the point of being almost useless. Uh, and But the feeling is there. They're very good at igniting the passions, but to actually show kind of the the slow, difficult work. Actually, here's a good one. Um, it was a documentary. Uh, it was called, uh, it was about ballroom dancers in middle school in New York, Mad, Mad, Mad Hot Ballroom, perhaps, um, which is actually a fantastic depiction of this learning process of igniting and getting kids from the inner city to do ballroom dancing. You know, uh, fantastic. I think I saw that. Anybody can, can find that. Bonus points again for pulling up the link. Um, did you ever see a movie called Forever Strong, the rugby movie? No. So uh, that, I'm, I'm thinking that might actually fall in the right category for you as well. And does anybody here have a, uh, anything else they'd want to mention? Daniel, what about books? Who do you like to read? Oh, boy. Who do I don't like to read? That's, that's the problem. No, I, I actually was just reading one of your guests, uh, Daniel Pink, um, reading his book on, on Drive. Uh, I read Steve Martin's latest uh, latest book about becoming a comedian, uh, Born Standing Up, which was just a brilliant depiction of of the process, the very uh, difficult, long building of his comedy circuits. Uh, that's that's is a fantastic, fantastic read, and he's of course hilarious. So that makes it that makes it even better. Um, but yeah, once you start, you sort of start uh, seeing some of this, some of these ideas. To me, it gives me uh, a new way of looking at at biography, at 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 history, and at you know, it's great sports stars or, or teachers. Um, it is it is kind of fun. It's like putting on a pair of goggles and looking around. So what's next for you? Are you working on a book right now? Well, I'm kind of poking around, looking looking for new stuff and working on a couple of other smaller projects while, I, while I'm in the process. I, I'm telling myself I'm deep practicing and uh, ignited to do it. But uh, so I'll, uh, I'll keep you posted, Steve. <laughs> We'd love to find out. So someone who loved the talent code and wants to read more, where do you send them? Go to Amazon.com and you'll see it uh, you'll see it there. No, I mean um and is there uh is there uh, other work being done that you feel like I read a book called um uh Talent is Overrated and I wondered, do you even know that guy? And it's you know, there was some it felt like very similar messages, but he didn't have the scientific piece. But are there other uh, books in the same topic area that you recommend? This is kind of a wave, yeah. I mean, Gladwell, uh, Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book called Outliers that's that's quite interesting about the role of luck and opportunity. And in a way, I sort of feel like we're covering some of the same landscape. He is flying at thirty thousand feet, and I'm sort of down a little closer to the treetops. But as a as a sort of a joint piece, um, that's an interesting combination, I think. And as a as a man named David Schenk coming out with a book called uh, I believe it's going to be called The Genius Inside Us. That's also drawing on this this sort of material. It's a bit of a bit of a wave. I mean, this is, is we started out by saying that talent was the last magical thing, and and we're seeing this wave of books, and and in some cases, I know there's a you know some documentary films in this topic as well that are going. I think our kids and our grandkids are going to have a very different view of talent because of this this wave of um, science and journalism that we're kind of in the middle of right now. 
Okay, well, that was really fun. Uh, for those of you who hadn't read the book, uh, I think you'll really enjoy it. Daniel, thanks for coming tonight. I'm clapping for you. Uh, really appreciate your taking the time. I know that you um, you had to maneuver around family things to be here tonight, and uh, we're grateful that you would take an hour to spend with us. Thanks to those of you who've come. Do remember that we've got some fun sessions still to come up. Uh, Tara Hunt tomorrow, James Paul G, and then Shell Israel. Daniel, any final words before we say good night? Well, I really appreciate all the all the interaction, and um, and thank you for all your all your notes and all your kind words. And there is a, a website, thetalentcode.com, that's got some more stuff on it. Some of which has to do with uh, with education in particular, and with some of the other larger ideas. But great, great group you have here. Thank you for introducing me to you. Well, thank you, and thanks for your contribution. I uh, really loved the book personally. Okay, thanks everybody. Dan, feel free to drop off. And it'll take us a couple of minutes to, to wrap everything up here and, and close out the room. I want to thank C. Bloom and Associates for their book fund, helping me afford to buy the books to read. Um, uh, if anybody wants to stick around for a couple of minutes, you're certainly welcome to. And if you were shy to ask a question while Daniel is here, you're, you can uh, raise your hand and, and talk about it. Um, and then uh, do, do consider joining us later this week. We have some fun guests coming up. Anybody want to say anything? Leonard, I'm giving you the mic. Do you remember what to do? Click down on your microphone button in the audio area. I'm hearing some sound, but I'm not sure it's you. No, no words were coming through. Yeah, Leonard, you're not coming through. You can go up to the Tools Audio and run the Auto Setup Wizard. Just make sure your mic's working. Yeah, just not coming through. Sorry to say. It is interesting to read a book that I feel sort of so substantially changed my perspective on so many things. Um, you know, from my own parenting to thinking about education and, and how things get done. Uh, it was fun to go kind of, I'd read it some time ago, maybe a couple of months, and I went back through and um, you know, looked through it again today with, uh, with an eye to asking questions, and um, almost wanted to read the whole thing again. Deb says, why have we gotten so soft? And Thomas says, do we see many connections to education? I think the huge connection for me, Tom, was thinking about teaching and learning and the model that's presented there and feeling that it's so stunningly uh, significant in terms of how we actually learn. The difference between, if I think of my own daughter practicing piano, how she kind of zips, you know, love my daughter and, and trying to figure out how to help her. And I think I'm actually making doing a better job now than I was before. But just sort of zipping through it and wanting to get through it and not wanting to make any mistakes and not really feeling the sense of her own ability to improve and to slow down, figure it out, and then improve. Um, and, and then watching that in, in um, you know my own children in school settings as well. Right, and, and I think she's I think she's confused about whether she's playing for herself or she's playing for me. But I mean I think to a certain degree you hope that something catches or ignites so that she she does want to be playing for herself. Um, something else is, oh, why have we gotten so soft? So Deb, I thought that was maybe one of the most interesting pieces of the interview for me <clears throat> was this sense of 
um, sort of voluntarily choosing to make things harder. We don't, we're not good at that. I mean, we celebrate every uh, Saturday soccer game and trophies at soccer, and we, um, you know, I I think that we have. L you know, maybe culturally lost our understanding of the value of simplicity, frugality, difficulty, and struggle. And and we talked about this. Gosh, what interview was it where we talked about um, the John Adams quote? You know, that I'm uh, I. Uh, you know, I'm I'm study war so that my children can study politics, so their children can study um, business, so their children can study art and history. And you know the idea that we sort of uh, go through something as a generation, and then don't want our kids necessarily to go through that. And um, you know we had some good friends. One of the one of the richest men in the United States actually uh, turned out to be an associate of ours in the Bay Area. I won't mention his name, but um, what, you know always on the top Forbes lists. And uh, his children all had to uh, buy and drive their own used cars. And uh, that's making much more sense to me than it did, you know, when I was a teenager. Um, and just the idea that we would not choose to to give everything and and to provide an environment of struggle. Maybe you got your mic back, Leonard. Uh, yeah, you let's are. see. Let's see. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Great. Uh, I don't know if I'm just breaking in now because I did uh, adjust the parameters there. Oh, you're good. So it's okay? Mm hmm Good. Okay, my question is this. Why would we think that a, a book like this would give us ideas to bring back to the conventional classroom and try to make it fit there against all of the obstacles that it would face? as opposed to thinking about a book like this as pointing in new directions for education beyond the assumptions that we take for granted about, about ordinary classrooms. I don't know about the others here, and I'm interested to get feedback, but for me it actually sort of did both. Mm -hmm. You know, I, for, a long, for a couple of years ago I did a long series of interviews with people who had been in the open source software world. Um, Richard Stallman, mm -hmm. Eric Raymond, Brian Bellendorf. And the, well, so the one clear thread was that almost all of the work that they had done, and largely a lot of it as teenagers, as significant programmers, was done completely out of the educational setting. And so I think, it, you know, to some degree it does inform us that there are lots of paths here that, um, you know, we need to be thinking about. And, and you know, maybe it does call into question some of our presumptions about traditional schooling. At the same time, I think a lot of the people who attend these sessions are, and I'm not, but you know, are educators and would be interested in trying to find a way to actually improve their own practice based on what was said. Any other thoughts on that, anybody? Yeah. Or Leonard, go ahead. Well, well I, I think what you're saying is absolutely right. I think if, you're, if your day-to-day -day work is just in an ordinary classroom, of course your interest is going to be, how can I take some of this back? Uh, but I do wonder whether these examples you mentioned, and there are thousands and maybe hundreds of thousands of examples like that, don't suggest that at least for a very large swath of kids, maybe not the majority, but a significant number, getting them out of school and into like these talent hotbeds would not be a very good idea. I mean, you can't do 10,000 hours of practice on something if you've got 10,000 hours of school to contend with at the same time. Yeah. Very good 
interesting points. Is there anybody else interested in, in responding to Leonard on that? You know, this came up with me in, and, uh, in the interview with Yang Zhao because it's an, at least for me, it's an argument for diversity of education. Mm -hmm. Lori, I'm going to give you the mic here. Hi everybody. This isn't Lori. This is Lori's oh, boyfriend. Um, I, I came in in the last bit of the conference and um, just thinking about you know environments of struggle. Um, I'm wondering, me as a teacher, if I have um, you know a class with ten students, I can guarantee you each one of those students will be taking risks. But if I'm stuck with a class of 40 students who have standards to meet, who have tests to pass, and you know, <clears throat> and it's very set out. I don't think I have time to actually um, create the environment which will make it safe for the students to take risks. I'm too busy being pushed and pushing the students, and so I think a lot of the um, the structural dynamics of how classrooms are arranged, how te what kinds of responsibilities teachers have, and how that's changing today has a lot to do with you know whether students are able to develop their talents to the to the kind of extent that we would like them see do so thanks so go ahead Leonard were you going to say something uh, no, I wasn't. Oh, uh, or maybe I'm, con I'm content to chat. Well, so I'm. I'm I, so I had my say. I hate to bring up, uh, you know, my own personal family, but it, 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 it's where I feel them. You know, obviously, uh, greatest understanding of an ex of experiences. But you know, the question. I think it was there was a there was a comment in the chat at some point earlier about getting to a certain age and then really kind of um, becoming an impassioned learner. So our oldest daughter um, had a had a difficult experience in grade. Uh, it was third grade when the, the year they do the big standardized test here in California, and um, and she was very um, uh, self motivated. You know, works very hard, uh, conscientious, and um, it, it was. It you're so nervous that the teacher was so upset and so um, nervous about this test coming up, and it just didn't make any sense. So we actually pulled her out of school, um, and she ended up taking um, going through a great books program, and actually had an educational experience outside of traditional school. Where at age 13, 14, she really began to to dig deeply, and she was um, in Shakespeare plays, and um, you know she's now a theater major. Um, College and and it felt like that was a really great experience and I sometimes um, wonder how universal that could be, but I also know that she, I think she had a better experience than um, a lot of students do who stay in traditional schools. Yeah, exactly. Look, this, I had the same experience with my son. And and I will say so. We have four children and they uh, they are different. So our second daughter really loves school and actually performs very well in a traditional school environment, and so mm -hmm. that's you know where she should be. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I really fall into the category of liking um, options and choice. Me too. <laughs> I think so. 
And so, Deb, I think you're raising a really interesting and hard question, which is, you know, um, an issue of equity, and um, and and that raises all kinds of very hard to solve problems for me. Um, although I think that we recognize, I don't like the idea of using business analogies to talk about school, but I do think that in the business world we recognize that without uh, diversity and inequality, you don't get the flowering of new ideas and, and new things. And so I'm not quite sure how to reconcile that uh, with, with schooling where we feel very concerned that things might be unequal. Um, sometimes that stops us from giving local control. Uh, but at the same time, uh, it seems to be very much a part of allowing new things to, f to flourish and flower. Is you know allowing for there to be differences in diversity in in, um, in the kinds of education that take place. Lori's boyfriend, were you going to chime back in? Yeah, I, I uh, <laughs> thank you. My name's Asif, by the way. Um, I uh, think that actually it's the it's the students who have the the kind of greater challenges at home that because of those struggles are are you know um, kind of have the potential to actually explode creatively while at school in a good way. Um, so it might actually be a motivating force to ha have those kinds of um, challenges. It's a really interesting thought. Uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm certainly can see people pushing back a little on that, trying not to glorify a difficult circumstance. But uh, again, you think of children of, of immigrant families, where um, you know the, the work ethic is there. If I can jump in uh, just one more time, um, I, I am one of the children of, of immigrant families, and I think another thing that um, maybe isn't taken into account as often as it could be is immigrant children have um, very kind of um, different knowledge because they're coming from different backgrounds, and they bring that knowledge with them, and then they kind of um, integrate the knowledge in the current environment. So really, they have perspectives that um, you know uh, other kids don't yet have, and and that making connections between those different realities and being able to see the world from different perspectives is something that's typically an immigrant kind of quality. And I think that, again, has to do with creativity. It has to do with talent. It has to do um, with work and, and things like that. So just personally, for me, uh, you know, what's normally seen as a disadvantage, uh, for me, I think is an advantage. Right, and it certainly speaks to what uh, Daniel calls in the book ignition, meaning uh, your different set of motivations around why you're at school and what it will what it will do for you in your life, maybe. Definitely. <laughs> okay, so I've got a dinner appointment, so I'm actually going to wrap us up here. I uh, sure appreciate your coming tonight. That was really a lot of fun. Um, Thanks for the good comments and the discussion. And uh, we'll look forward to, to seeing you all online at some point. Thanks and good night.